Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. I'm Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is a special New Year's Eve podcast, episode 12, 2017, a year in review. In this episode, we will be reliving the disaster which was 2017, uh, including a look at significant Canadian emergency management events, lessons hard learned, and advances for the profession. We'll also be discussing what we think 2018 may have in store for us, as well as a few of our own New Year's Eve resolutions. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Well, Grayson, 2017 was certainly a big year for emergency management. I've heard it referred to as the dumpster fire quite often. And certainly on the international scale, there did seem to be just a a lot of disasters piled on top of one another. But I'm not quite sure about the same for Canada in 2017. Yeah, I agree. Although it was a a pretty busy year, uh, there were a lot of significant learnings and advances for Canadian emergency management, which we'll try to cover best we can. To uh, start it off, we'll get started with our epic disaster highlights reel and uh, we're looking through the Canadian disaster database hoping that it might be updated for this episode but not quite updated yet so that means that you heard it here first and uh, of course looking through disaster listings we're still waiting for the most authoritative one which comes from CRED which is the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters in the MDAT database so we have a report for 2016 but the report for 2017 won't be out until mid 2018 so uh, it takes a little while to crunch the numbers but looking at a big picture we began 2017 coming out of 2016 having just made the top 10 list according to MDAT of the costliest global disasters in 2016 we were 3.5 times above our own national average in terms of economic losses based on averaging 2006 to 2015 so certainly the pump was primed starting off in in early 2017. Mm -hmm. And it got off to a rather frigid start with the January ice storms in New Brunswick. Uh, This was the unprecedented freezing rain that uh, that fell from the 24th to 26th of January and hit primarily the east and northeast part of the province. Uh, This overwhelmed critical infrastructure with up to four times the amount of ice buildup that the power infrastructure is required to be able to withstand. It left almost 300,000 people stranded and without electricity for days and days and days. Uh, Five municipalities declared a state of local emergency and the military was called in to assist in assessing homes. Uh, And in the end, there were two fatalities from carbon monoxide poisoning uh, and many more were hospitalized. So this was a massive disaster. And one of the great things that came out of it uh, was the 2017 ice storm review completed by, not just commissioned by, but completed by the New Brunswick government. Uh, And if you think that that means they're gonna pull punches or downplay their areas for improvement, think again. This is actually my favorite after action review ever. That's quite Uh, a claim. It talks about literally, (laughs) literally every challenge facing disaster management from risk personalization and communication to the public, to the provision of emergency social services and how best to set up a shelter, to when and how to call a provincial state of emergency or activate the military, and even about the detrimental impact that political visits have on a a disaster site. There are a lot of recommendations, 51 in total, and the report is 170 pages long. So it's a serious report, and and it is one of my favorite reads of the year. Uh, Highly recommend and very well done report. 
<laughs> okay, uh, moving on. Um, another major event this year was the Quebec mosque shooting. In January, we covered the, the shooting where six people lost their lives. Alexander Bizonet is facing six counts of first-degree murder and five counts of attempted murder. And I think this event raised an interesting question about defining terrorism. What makes something a terrorist attack? It's kind of like disaster. It's a bit of a nebulous definition. Does there have to be formal terrorism charges laid for it to be terrorism? What if there's nobody to charge? And where's the separation between just murder and terrorism? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and other politicians have labeled the event as terrorism. And Lauren Dawson, who's the director of the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society at the University of Waterloo, even went on to call it the single most lethal terrorist attack in Canada after the Air India bombing in 1985. So what do you think, Grayson? Does this count as a, a terrorist attack? Well, I mean... Does it count as a disaster? I don't know. If it's being declared a terrorist attack, uh, I don't know if that designation does much uh, other than determine which groups might be involved. But Yeah, I mean, I guess there's the social implications of when you label something terrorism, and obviously that has, therefore, political connotations too when we talk about terrorism. From a purely uh, legal standpoint, from what I was reading, and there's a U of A law professor who wrote a good article about this, talks about the terrorism um, laws that are in place are kind of nebulous in the sense that they're meant more for financing terrorism and, and kind of communicating with uh, terrorism issues, um, and that the criminal code actually has pretty good uh, mechanisms in place around things like murder and, and arson and, and those sort of things. So uh, when it comes to laying charges in terrorism, it's often more difficult to lay something as a terrorism charge because you actually have to prove motive that it was somehow politically or socially inspired and unless uh you know uh, somebody being charged is act actively openly saying that they're a terrorist and and that's why they did something it's much easier to ensure a conviction just using you know other uh legal instruments and that applies in the same way to the the recent Edmonton attack, which has been referenced as a terrorist attack in federal reports, uh, despite the lack of any criminal charges. That's right. And another story we mentioned this past year was to do with the Quebec blizzard, where 300 to 500 motorists were all stranded on the busy Highway 13 uh, on March 15th. And this was a, an interesting event because... Um, there was a very clear report that came out after that kind of analyzed and did some fault tree analysis going back as an after action report. And really, this seems to be a human factors accident. The report cited mainly there was a lack of situational awareness on the part of the Ministry of Transport and others who are monitoring the, the events. And really, it wasn't uh, realized until hours and hours into the event that they were dealing with uh, something that actually required rescuing of people from trapped cars up to that point they were following their normal escalation processes just for uh, a snow clearing event in the monitoring centers that use cameras and other sensors to kind of monitor the transportation network really kind of lost situational awareness in terms of realizing how uh, severe the the um, incident was and unfortunately as we know there were lives lost so this kind of talks about the cognitive dissonance that is involved with situational awareness and how do you actually know what's going on and, and prove to yourself that you know what's going on even though we had lots of sophisticated monitoring equipment there's still a failure in, in actually recognizing that uh, a disaster was taking place 
Uh, the report goes on to talk about communications failure. There, there was an internal emergency alerting system that was text message based that sent off 10 SMS alerts to the designated emergency managers within the Ministry of Transport and, and other agencies. And unfortunately, the uh, monitoring center only received two replies. Um, and then there was some unclear jurisdictional issues between the province and Montreal, the municipality, in terms of who was responsible for responding and, and who had authority to um, to activate municipal uh, resources. So there was quite a delay in getting the fire department from Montreal to actually help with the uh, the rescuing of people from their vehicles. All in all, there's about 28 recommendations in the report. Um, it was Florent Ganji, who's one of the former uh, transport deputy ministers who wrote the report, and he talks a lot about the need for better coordination in the future. Also in March, uh, the almost yearly event of the Manitoba flooding took place. and. Although a fairly standard response to these sort of events, what I did find interesting that uh, is that the uh, awareness of the flooding and the preemptive um, action that was taken for the flood started much, much earlier when they noticed that the snow pack and water soil moisture levels were, were very high. So a lot of forewarning uh, for this year's flooding in Manitoba. And I think flooding is going to stay on our newsreel for years to come. <laughs> yeah, I think if I were to make one prediction, uh, it would be that flooding will continue in Manitoba and the rest of Canada. <laughs> From flooding to fire, uh, the BC and to a less extent the Alberta wildfires, which started in July, are still very fresh in everyone's collective memory uh, and set the record in a number of ways, not least of which is the worst and most destructive wildfire season in the province's history. Depending on where you get your numbers, uh, there were approximately 40,000 people evacuated, uh, 13,000 square kilometers burned, and 300 structures destroyed. And the BC government initiated the longest provincial state of emergency in the province's history. It had to be extended four times uh, and spanned from July 7th to September 15th. One of the more interesting things about this response uh, and to come out of this disaster was the measures that had to be undertaken to keep firefighters on the ground and the EOCs staffed. Mm -hmm. Uh, this event was so protracted that firefighters arrived from all over the world, uh, and the initial EOC staff members had to be replaced multiple times by emergency managers from other provinces and even other countries. Uh, it was definitely one for the books, and we look forward to what I'm sure will be a massive after-action report from this event. Mm -hmm. And interesting uh, how so many of the firefighters are you know, university students with summer jobs, and the, their contracts all ended, so there was this... Uh, you know, kind of unprecedented manpower shortage. Yeah, and I, I think the same can be said for the volunteer agencies and anyone who is responding. They just ran out of people. They just ran out of staff. And a lot of those uh, mutual aid agreements really had to shine in, in the moment. Yeah, well, what about the uh, Waterton fire? Yeah, lots and lots of fires this year, uh, not just in BC. Um, Waterton had a, a rather massive fire in which the town site was threatened and surrounding areas uh, had to be evacuated. And then also uh, in Alberta, there were some more recent grass and wind fires that threatened several communities. So uh, a, a ice, water and fire storm for sure this year. And it looks like we've come full circle, hey? That's right, yeah. 
<laughs> so kind of rounding out the year and we're, we're still in the midst of it right now a big winter cold snap affecting lots of communities especially the coastal regions with ice storms and wind storms so um, this cold snap causing power and gas outages in parts of bc nova scotia new brunswick where there's thousands of people that were without power and, and some still are as we speak and uh, also in northern alberta there's been problems with uh, water supply as well as uh, natural gas supply that's been causing disruptions and, and resulted in um, local emergency declarations so yeah, we, we certainly hope that they they all find a warm place and that the emergency workers are staying safe for this new year's eve that's right so if we take a big picture look uh, there's been some other disaster trends and um, as we like to say commonly on the show it's you know hard to define what exactly a disaster is and isn't but certainly an ongoing crisis in the country has been the fentanyl issue um, mm-hmm. what are your what are your thoughts on that Grayson yeah, so we had our epic debate on whether or not the fentanyl crisis was indeed a emergency, and different provinces have declared different levels of uh, of emergency in response to this crisis, and it's still a question that is being faced almost weekly. There's something in the news about a member of parliament or representative uh, urging the provincial government to declare a state of emergency across the country. So I think this one will continue into 2018, and there are a lot of different initiatives and a lot of different opinions on how to best uh, approach this crisis. That's right, yeah. And I think everybody agrees it is it is definitely a crisis and a, and a major um, health hazard. Uh, does it meet the definition that would benefit from a pr- provincial state of emergency, either a public health emergency or just a, an ordinary provincial state of emergency? That's uh, one of the ongoing issues. Um, but definitely it's something that's taking a huge financial toll as well as uh, um, obviously many lives lost, which is quite tragic. So we're going to be following that throughout the year. It's encouraging to see the um, all phases really of the of the emergency management cycle at play here. Things like public access to naloxone and uh, education programs, as well as uh, legal changes in terms of how opioids are dispensed in the country. So uh, a big policy uh, shift trying to manage this this issue. Also, a hot topic that I believe will carry on till 2018 is the gradual introduction and uh, increased awareness of flood insurance and flood mapping. So 2017 heralded the first time that flood insurance was actually available in Canada and that has been slowly growing and it's still unclear what that will really look like in terms of a shared responsibility uh, for recovery between federal, provincial entities and insurance entities because as we're saying the flooding is certainly a constant and it would certainly be a very poor business model for insurance agencies to be the sole source of recovery Uh, money. Yeah, it's lots of uh, questions both financially and ethically when it comes to flood insurance. Uh, We've seen seen very controversial programs down in the States, uh, which are deserving of their own episode for sure. And um, yeah, be interesting to follow these issues. I like the idea of many communities making flood mapping uh, available publicly and and online. um, So you can actually see where your where your uh, property lies in terms of but even for that, there's there's a uh, political disincentive to even do the flood mapping. And that's one of the, the hurdles that flood insurance hasn't really yet overcome, is that we're terrible at flood mapping in Canada. Because as soon as you find out that something is officially in a flood zone, all of a sudden your property is not worth very much. So not a whole lot of incentive to uh, be proactive in that regard. And... Uh 
both from a flood perspective as well as ice storms and fires, the Canadian Armed Forces had a very busy year uh, with disaster response in, in Canada. Do you have some numbers for us, Grayson? Yeah, so they call this uh, Operation Lentis. It's their ongoing disaster, domestic disaster response operation. And 4,800 troops uh, were deployed between the ice storms and the floods and the fires. Uh, many of my colleagues got a chance to use their skills uh, in a domestic sense in areas all over the country. Yeah, and a lot of very thankful communities, uh, grateful for the help, I'm sure. One of the interesting things uh, about military deployments came up in, again, my favorite after-action report in the New Brunswick uh, ice storms, was whether or not the deployment of military was even necessary. Uh, there was a lot of debate around this, not only the mechanism to deploy them, but whether or not they, they filled a, a true function. And I guess there was a little bit of contention over whether they were providing a service that private industry... Uh, was really responsible for. And I think this is uh, something that comes up often when people talk about disasters is what is the role of the military? And there seems to be a lot of misconceptions there, even with the terminology like aid to civil powers. So what exactly does that mean, Grayson? Yeah, so there's a pretty pretty large distinction between aid to civil power and then uh, their domestic disaster response. And they're not interchangeable. Aid to civil power would be when the military is granted the same sort of level of authority and power as uh, a police force and then their domestic response uh, they are simply there to aid um, the response in a non-law enforcement capacity so uh, recently in in the fires it was said that they were helping the rcmp but that was not in a law enforcement capacity they were helping to secure uh, vehicle checkpoints and that sort of thing, but not to make any arrests. Interesting. So yeah. why don't we talk a little bit about some of the advances and uh, the big highlights of the year to round yeah, things Yeah, I think there was actually a lot that happened this year. Um, for example, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunication Commission, the CRTC, issued their directive to all wireless service providers in the country to implement wireless public alerting cap capability no later than April 6, 2018. Yeah, I think that will be exciting to see what the uh, mass alerting um, uh, implications of that are. We also saw a new emergency management framework for Canada that was released back in May. Uh, if you're interested, you can see our, our episode again, which we reviewed that document for you. So that's an important policy framework, and I think that the changes do represent some of the current thinking in emergency management. There's also the 30-year anniversary of the Black Friday Edmonton tornado, uh, as well as the 100th year anniversary of the Halifax explosion. And as we discovered, there is great value in looking back on these disasters and lessons that we can learn that apply even now. Yeah, and you can check out our Halifax explosion episode if you haven't had a chance to yet. And in October, the Halton uh, Ontario Police Force became the first in Canada to use a new dedicated public safety wireless network, which gives priority access to emergency workers. And that, that was our top picks for uh, 2017, but there were many, many more uh, significant advances, lots of great uh, research and education initiatives that were brought forward, um, and I'm looking forward to more in 2018. So Josh... What was your favorite moment of 2017? What was your favorite disaster story of the year? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, we never want to make light of, of the hardship that uh, comes with disasters and events. But I think sometimes looking for the um, 
silver lining in these events. There's a few good things that come out. So one of them, which I thought was really interesting, was the response to the BC wildfires, how emergency managers from communities big and small um, uh, from across the province and, and beyond all became uh, involved in, in helping manage the various EOCs. And I think that's a really important thing for our field as we move forward is uh, trying to make these opportunities for other emergency managers to get experience in, in actual disaster response because we all know that you know organically just going through your career you don't get a ton of exposure necessarily to these big type one incidents so the more that we can share the um, the experience so to speak and artificially get people into these uh, various roles I think it just brings our whole um, emergency management movement uh, forward so it's nice to see that involvement and I think that's uh, there's quite a few more people in certainly BC who have uh, more experience and comfort now with larger disasters and and at least you know that's a, a step forward for the profession yeah nothing um, increases interoperability like interacting during an operation yeah and how about yourself Grayson what stands out as a, uh, a poignant moment so I know what mine is and it's I have to admit not very academic but during the BC wildfires, uh, there were some farmers that unfortunately had to abandon their farm. Uh, the flames were coming in, the smoke was thick. They had to leave their sheep, uh, almost 100 sheep and two sheep dogs alone and sort of abandon them to the elements. And they did not expect them to survive. Uh, and when they came back several weeks later, the two sheep dogs had looked after all of the sheep despite every obstacle and had only lost one and they were all returned happy and healthy at the end of the event. I wonder if the sheep dogs were ICS trained. Oh, I think so. They were operations <laughs> section. Sheep dog task force. Yeah, good safety officer. Awesome. And lastly, Grayson, why don't we end off with some New Year's resolutions? So we're pretty excited about the podcast and the upcoming year. Uh, what do you have uh, in store for us? Yeah, it is the season. Uh, so... Coming up on Epic Podcast, uh, we will be publishing our Epic Disaster Calendar with a list of upcoming conferences and significant uh, learning experiences and disaster events. We will also be having some very interesting guests on our show. Uh, Tim Tritton will be on talking about the uh, public alerting system in Alberta as well as the rest of Canada. We'll also have Dr. Tim Haney, who will be talking about his recent publication of Rising Waters, A Difficult Decisions, where he reviews some of the evacuation trends in the 2013 Calgary floods. And we'll have many, many more uh, news episodes as well, which we will try to commit to having monthly. And finally, a big thank you to everyone who listens to our podcast. We've had a lot of great feedback and involvement. Uh, we really enjoyed podcasting on 2017, and we're looking forward to a successful 2018. So happy new year to everyone listening to the podcast. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast current, relevant, Canadian.